0: live from new york i'm julia chatterley this is first move and here's your need to know methane master plan cop 26 embracing targets for crucial emissions cuts messaging musk the world food program says the tesla boss could help save 42 million lives and wintry warning beijing urges people to stockpile food and prepare for emergencies it's tuesday let's make a move Welcome to First Move once again, where the green dream is again our theme, assuming global leaders agree it's one team. But when it comes to financing, will they be so keen? And that's a crucial question. But I can tell you today, there's a lot of good cop to discuss Leaders from more than 100 countries pledging to end deforestation by 2030. More than two dozen financial firms also set to join the fight, too. In the meantime, India's Narendra Modi promising to get his country to net zero by 2070. Okay, it's a way off, but it's still a crucial commitment. And the US and EU spearheading efforts to limit the release of methane gas. It's 25 times more damaging than CO2 over a 100-year period. Later this hour, we'll be joined by U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack, who's rolling out a sweeping climate-smart agriculture program with the UAE and other nations to make food production more sustainable. Also, Toyota's electric future charging up too as it readies its first electric vehicle. They'll be on later to discuss their plans as well. There is a lot coming up. In the meantime, U.S. stocks already charged, hitting all-time highs on Monday. Europe. In the meantime, near records after a cautious session in Asia. And that was led, in fact, I think, by central bank tightening Australia's central bank, beginning the process of reducing support. We've got the Federal Reserve that may finally announce reduced bond buying on Wednesday. And last but not least, the Bank of England could raise interest rates on Thursday. So we're heading from anti-inflation crusaders to green deal persuaders. Let's get to the drivers. Leaders are pledging to slash emissions of the powerful greenhouse gas methane by around 30% in less than 10 years. It comes alongside efforts to end deforestation, too. Bill Weir is in Glasgow, where the COP26 talks are taking place. Bill, fantastic to have you on the show. I mentioned the impact of methane gas. It's going to have profound implications for oil and gas industries all over the world. And that's perhaps why the likes of India, Russia and China have not signed on to this. And this is always the challenge, getting everybody on board.
1: Absolutely, Julia. Just for perspective, if, if carbon dioxide is a blanket of average th- thickness around the world, a- holding in the heat, methane is a blanket that is as thick as a basketball player is tall, you know, two to three meters in comparison. In the short term, it's much easier to control and you won't solve Uh, the climate crisis without containing methane Uh, just in one section of texas the permian basin enough of it leaks from oil wells to heat seven million homes it's so plentiful and cheap they often just burn it as it comes out of the pipe called flaring but now the united states is stepping up and saying they will use the environmental protection agency to crack down on big oil companies uh, in order to try to monitor it fix those leaks contain it which makes good business sense for them because that's you know lost product in the long run But as you say, uh, Russia, which in their vast, uh, you know, petrochemical infrastructure, they're not coming near this. Uh, China as well. The United States back in this game after the Trump years backing away. Of course, George W. Bush also backed away from the Kyoto Protocol. So a lot of this conference, the COP26, is about trust, regaining trust from the richest countries and what they owe in terms of more responsibility uh, to developing nations as well.
0: Oh, you raise such a great point. And the Chinese have already come out and said, look, the developed nations promised $100 billion to help the transition. We had the head of the IEA come on this show and say 70% of the investment required to prepare for climate change has to come from emerging nations. And to your point about trust already, to some degree, it's being broken if the financial commitments aren't being given in a timely manner.
1: Absolutely. Uh, there was a sort of a major step uh, towards that end to, to earning some of that trust today. Also announced that the United States, the EU, the UK will help South Africa specifically move away from coal. It will cost billions of dollars, but there's no better example for sort of environmental injustice than South Africa. Power infrastructures built under apartheid. Uh, huge, you know, per capita pollution rates in that country. So that's a specific example of the big countries which created this mess, largely uh, stepping up to help those that didn't.
0: It's such a critical element. And, and Bill, we've watched you in some incredibly tough situations where you've been reporting on wildfires. And it was interesting to see the president comment on their efforts to tackle deforestation. Not only places like the Amazon, a huge carbon sink, of course, but of course those areas that are facing the worst impact of of climate change too. Just let me play for my viewers what the President had to say on this.
2: Through this plan, the United States will help the world deliver on our shared goal of halting natural forest loss and restoring at least an additional 200 million hectares of forest and other ecosystems by the year 2030.
0: Bill, what do you make of this pledge?
1: Well, this is a huge story of the day, especially since Russia, Vladimir Putin joined this as well as uh, President Bolsonaro of Brazil. Uh, They joined via tape messages uh, sort of matching this pledge to stop deforestation by the end of this decade. Just for perspective in 2020, humanity cut down 100,000 square miles of forest, uh, 250,000 square kilometers. It's about bigger than the size of the UK in one year. And deforestation, the loss of biodiversity, what it does to indigenous forest communities, all of these things put together make uh, make that a major promise. If these countries are sincere, again, Russia and Brazil lead the world in turning valuable forest, which is a carbon sink, into farmland.
0: Yeah, I don't think anyone would have believed this of President Bolsonaro, but we, um, we live in hope and we, uh, we pray that all nations follow through <laughs> on this promise. Um, Bill, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Bill, we are there. OK, let's move on. The World Food Programme calling a tweet about global poverty by Elon Musk a, quote, game changer. It's promising to help solve world hunger with billions of dollars raised by selling Tesla shares if the UN can give details on how his money will be spent. Here's how the WFP chief responded on CNN earlier. Because
3: of COVID impacting already climate change and conflict, we have a one-time crisis of about 42 million people that are literally knocking on famine's door. It will cost about over six billion dollars to reach those 42 million. And we can do that. And I will show him. We will put it out in front of him. We have all the cost accounting, public transparency, any and everything that he would ask. We will be glad to answer. And I look forward to having this discussion with him because lives are at stake.
0: Christian Roman's joins us live now christine good on david is all i can say i love what he had to say there do you think elon musk expected that response you know it's so
4: fascinating and there's so much more of what david said too he talked about how a dollar or two dollars a week he spends on a poor child in Guatemala keeps that child's family from trying to move across borders where you're spending $2,700 a week in shelters at the border uh, to the United States to try to um, to try to house them, feed them and clothe them. So he's making this idea that it's an investment to keep stability and to prevent mass migration that can be so uh, destabilizing. You know, Elon Musk, he tweeted this sort of this this Chinese poem, everyone's trying to figure out what exactly that means. Is it it about this? Is it about something else? So I don't know if Musk and Beasley are talking to each other about this issue. But as you said yesterday, we are having a really solid conversation about alleviating world hunger here. uh, And and Musk's name is is right there in the middle
0: of it. I know. And I tell you who he is signaling to when he sends out Chinese proverbs or poems. And that is the Chinese consumer and the Chinese viewer, because social media has gone wild suggesting that if he is honest in addressing issues like world hunger, then he should sign up for his Communist Party membership. And we know, obviously, China is a crucial element of Tesla car sales as well. So Elon Musk is always, uh, I think, willing perhaps to um, make overtures to China. But this is a bold one.
4: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> joining the Communist Party, because look, you made a lot of money. It's your job to redistribute that money to people who have have no money at all. I mean, that would be sort of central to the Communist Party theme, wouldn't it? Um, Redistribution. No- <laughs> Redistribution. No word from uh, Elon Musk about whether he plans on doing that. But a lot of people are talking about the proverb that he <laughs> that he posted, everybody trying to find some sort of meaning behind it. Um, it's classic vintage Musk, isn't it?
0: It's vintage Musk. You are absolutely right. But uh, I'm sure... There weren't people around him that were expecting David to come back and say, "We will provide," as, as Elon said. I want it open source. I want the plan out there, and I'll look to sell. Uh, I'll look to sell Tesla shares in order to have to finance it. Um, again, I say, it, I love that we're having the conversation, particularly in weeks when we've seen them launch rockets into space, and people have said, "Hey, you're a brilliant mind. Can you please tackle some of the issues that we have here back on Earth?" And um, yeah, this is and certainly reminder. one where we could use his genius.
4: And a reminder from David Beasley that a dollar invested in a poor family where they live and investments where people live can prevent some of the big destabilizing mass migration problems that cost
0: so much more money down the road. Yeah. The return on investment here, priceless. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. Stuck up before winter comes. That's the message from the Chinese government as food prices soar. Social media in China then rife with speculation about what led to that request. Selena Wang joins us with all the details. Selina, we have seen particularly vegetable prices soar in certain cases becoming more expensive than meat, but it was the social media response. And I think the alarm, whether it was COVID or Taiwan even mentioned here that, that caught my attention. Talk us through what we saw. Julie, yeah, this directive really sent shockwaves throughout
5: the public, especially on social media. The government essentially telling people to stock up. This comes as you've got bad weather, COVID-19 restrictions and energy shortages all threatening the food supply chain. The Ministry of Commerce urging local authorities to make sure that people have enough vegetables, oils, meats and to also keep food prices stable. This is critical because it's been a huge concern as we've seen those vegetable prices soar across China as unusually heavy rainfall has been damaging these crops. And so on social media, people were speculating, why issue this directive now? Some were saying that, is this a sign that we're not going to be able to afford our vegetables come wintertime? Others even said, is this because of heightened tensions with Taiwan? Is this because of an imminent attack on Taiwan? But state media was very quickly to dismiss those ideas. In fact, the public outrage and concern was so forceful that it forced state media to try and calm the public, saying that, Don't let your imagination run wild. This is essentially to make sure that people have enough stockpiles in case they are caught in a COVID-19 lockdown. This, Julia, has become more common as China is dealing with yet another surge in COVID-19 cases. They've reported more than 300 COVID-19 cases in the past two weeks, which by international standards sounds very low. But in China, they are still pursuing this zero-tolerance COVID-19 policy, where even one COVID-19 case sends massive resources huge efforts to try and stamp down and eradicate every single case. Just over the past weekend we saw one case send Shanghai Disneyland into a snap lockdown. We've seen COVID-19 the continued efforts here upend people's daily lives, but with the Beijing Winter Olympics just three months away and an important government meeting coming up, these extreme measures are not likely to let up. But Julia, also important to mention that during the pandemic, China's government has put an increase focused on food security in general. They've been encouraging people not to waste their food. They even passed a law earlier this year that penalizes people if they have excessive leftovers at restaurants, allowing restaurants to find them extra money. It also penalizes people who post videos or make or share videos about binge eating, a fine of as much as $15,000, Julia.
0: Wow. Wow. I, I hadn't read about that at all. We're going to be talking about food security later on in the show. I've just been scribbling lots of notes. Um, food wastage for me all around the world is such a critical issue. Um, I love the way actually that Tina is addressing this. Um, it's expensive, but I think worthwhile. Selena Wang, thank you. Yeah, Loads no of food binging videos there. from uh, from yes. people anytime
5: soon.
0: Yeah. Selena Wang, great job. Thank you so much for that. Fascinating. Carry on the conversation for the rest of the show and I'll get shouted at. Thank you. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. At least 10 people have died after an apartment building that was under construction collapsed Monday in Lagos, Nigeria. The building was more than 20 stories high. Rescue workers are searching through the rubble for survivors. Witnesses say it took the emergency services hours even to get to the scene. More than 66,000 people who were at Shanghai Disneyland this weekend have been screened for COVID-19 and have all tested negative. They were forced to take the tests after a single case was detected in a woman who went to the park on Saturday. Shanghai Disneyland was closed for several days and is now expected to reopen on Wednesday. So to come on first move, tentative Toyota, the world's biggest carmaker, unveils its first all-electric car but hedges its best in the rates to zero and greener vegetables. Food production is a major source of emissions. I speak to the US Secretary of Agriculture about a new initiative to clean up. That's all coming up, stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Blue chips are trying to move higher after a strong start to November trading Monday. Tech a little bit softer, as you can see, after six straight winning sessions. The shipping giant Maersk posting its most profitable quarter ever, but also warning that it sees no end to the supply chain issues rattling global businesses. It says congestion at key U.S. ports is only getting worse. A reminder of the many challenges facing firms, even with stocks sitting at record highs. Bank of America is now forecasting a fresh business spending cycle. It sees companies rethinking supply chain strategies and perhaps moving more operations closer to home. OK, it's Toyota's turn. The world's biggest car maker unveiling its first fully electric SUV, complete with solar panel roof. Toyota may be relatively late to the EV game, but it lays claim to being a climate pioneer. 25 years ago, it produced the Prius, the world's first mass-produced hybrid vehicle. Toyota says it will continue this portfolio approach to the energy transition. No one fuel option is the best solution for every customer, every time, it says. And today, Toyota is protesting an EV credit proposed by the US government that credit would give customers a $4,500 rebate for buying an electric vehicle from unionized plants. Joining us now, Bob Carter, Executive Vice President of Sales at Toyota Motor North America. Bob, fantastic to have you on the show. Wow, we've got a lot to discuss. Talk to me first about your first EV offering. And and who chose the name? It's an unusual one. (laughs)
6: Well, thank you, Julia. Uh, we're happy to reintroduce a full battery electric into both the Toyota and Lexus lineups. The vehicles sitting behind me are the new BZ4X that will be arriving at Toyota dealerships in the U.S. this spring. And BZ is our new sub-brand. It stands for Beyond Zero. And 4X it describes the vehicle. It's an all-wheel drive uh, crossover. And then to my other side is the LFF, which is a concept of a new battery electric vehicle that will be offered for our electric electric lineup in our Lexus brand. So it adds to our portfolio approach of hybrids, plug-in hybrids, hydrogen fuel cells, and now full battery electrics.
0: You know, at a time when car makers are seemingly falling over themselves to... Uh, announced the end or the demise of combustion engines and a commitment to going all electric. As I mentioned, you're saying, look, we're going to go with this portfolio approach, whether it's hydrogen fuel cell, full electric or or hybrid. Why? What makes you either unsure it's time or it's, it's early, it's too early to make a commitment or that you're still willing to be investing in all of these different technologies?
6: Uh, uh, North America and the globe is a, is a very big market. Mm. And not one technology, hybrid or battery electric, is right for every customer. We believe the fastest way for carbon neutrality is to offer a broad portfolio of low carbon emitting or zero carbon emitting powertrains and then let the consumers decide what is best for them. Uh, There's also a premium price to many of these technologies, and by continuing and encouraging consumers to consider hybrid or plug-in hybrids, which are much more affordable, we believe the fleet in North America will change over much more rapidly. So we're completely aligned with the targets to try to achieve 50% electrification by 2030, But frankly, that's why my concern this morning about some of the government policies we're all hearing about.
0: Yeah, let's talk about this because what the White House is proposing is um, a 7,500 point of sale uh, consumer rebate for electric vehicles. But if your vehicle is manufactured in a unionized plant or facility, you get an additional $4,500 rebate. I mean, that makes a huge difference if you're an international supplier of cars relative to a a U.S. supplier of cars. You're dead against this.
6: Yeah. Well, let me be clear. This this policy is bad policy coming forth from our federal government. Mm. It's there to really support three brands, General Motors, Ford and Stellantis, which, by the way, is also an international brand. Uh, It's bad for the environment. If the goal is to really uh, achieve 50% electrification by 2030, then why limit the number of vehicles that uh, are available to consumers to receive this credit? $4,500 or roughly $100 a month is too much for a manufacturer or a consumer that are expected to absorb that. It's also bad for auto workers. Uh, As you know, we have 15 manufacturing plants throughout North America. We have 38,000 employees and team members in our plants in Kentucky, Indiana, Alabama, Texas, all over the place that produce our Toyota vehicles that we have for sale here. And to suggest that an auto worker that's in Indiana or Kentucky is not of the same value as an auto worker that's working in Ohio or Michigan in a UAW plant really is unfair and, quite frankly, doesn't make sense.
0: So basically what you're saying is it's uh, bad policy, it's also bad politics, because it's going to fly in the face of everything that they're trying to achieve in terms of switching to electrification and seeing more electric cars on the road.
6: Yes. The uh, the three manufacturers, General Motors, Chrysler, uh, I'm sorry, Stellantis, and Ford represent about 40 percent of the U.S. market. So to support just those three brands and not include Toyota or Tesla or Rivian or Lucid really limits consumer choice. And it's going to really hurt the industry's progress to achieving carbon neutrality.
0: Yeah, it makes no sense to me either. Um, Talk to me about the supply chains as well, because you had to make a number of cuts in, in your global production targets as a result of what we're seeing. And I mentioned earlier on the show that despite efforts from the government to relieve some of the congestion in two major ports in the United States, actually the challenges are, are increasing. Bob, what's your experience?
6: Well, supply chains are still very fragile. Uh, number one for the auto industry is microchips. Now, the good news is is that after two very, very difficult months in September and October, we see microchip availability starting to stabilize in November, December. Our production will still be down slightly versus a year ago, but it's much improved over what we just experienced in the last 60 to 90 days. We're hopeful that as we get to Q1 of 22, that we'll start seeing a more normalized microchip availability for our plants. But it's still very tenuous, it's still uh, day to day. To your question about West Coast ports, yes, it's an issue for for us in the industry, but it's a a minor uh, issue. We've been able to change our logistics routes and be doing air shipments of parts that come from suppliers around the globe to keep our U.S. manufacturing plants going. Uh, Still day-to-day, but much improved outlook.
0: Yeah, the critical path analysis involved in being a, a manufacturer or supplier of any goods at the moment is, um, I think, enormous. Yeah. Bob, thank you so much for your time this morning. A great to chat to you. Bob Carter, Executive Vice President of Sales at Toyota Motors North America. Thank you, sir, and we'll speak to you again soon. The market thank opens you. next. Thank Stay you. with us. Big smiles and enthusiastic cheers there at the New York Stock Exchange. Welcome back to First Move. And despite the enthusiasm there, a slightly timid Tuesday on Wall Street, The down the S&P trying to inch further into record territory. And we are seeing a little bit of weakness in some of the tech stocks as well. Pfizer, though, an early session gainer after the COVID vaccine maker upped its full year guidance. Tesla shares in the meantime weaker amid a real life episode of deal or no deal. Elon Musk surprising investors, saying he has not yet signed a deal to sell some 100,000 vehicles to rental car firm Hertz. Now, Hertz has just released a statement saying the order was in fact placed and that the deliveries have already started. Remember, the CEO said on our show they'd go up to 150,000 cars if demand was there. Now, Musk argued... That with, with demand outstripping supply, he doesn't have to offer Hertz special treatment. And remember, I asked him that too. So perhaps that's the slight issue here. Same price to Hertz as consumers, according to Elon Musk. Now, investors following the deal-making drama in D.C. Too, Senator Joe Manchin says he cannot yet support the massive spending bill before Congress that includes billions in clean energy incentives for businesses. His vote is needed if the plan is to pass. And in the meantime, China's climate envoy says the West has damaged trust by failing to deliver on vows to finance the shift from fossil fuels. Developing nations have been promised $100 billion in 2020 to help decarbonize, and that target will now only be met in 2022 or 2023. This comes as the US, the UK and the EU pledge $8.5 billion to help fund South Africans' transition from coal. David McKenzie joins us now. David, crucial issue, of course, for South Africa, not only the need to transition, but the financing to help it.
7: Well, that's right. It's money, masses of amounts of money that is required to transition developing countries like South Africa away from coal. And it's crucial in the fight against the climate crisis, that $8.5 billion in initial partnership uh, just announced by Boris Johnson is seen as a watershed moment in a possible strategy for helping countries like South Africa end their addiction to coal. No!
3: <whistles> Treacherous steps into the blackness Shut up! with illegal miners. So we're going deep into this mine, it's a disused mine. But coal is so important in this country that even the old mines, people will go down like this, in dangerous conditions, and get what they can. What Antony Bongkosi can get, just three dollars for a bag of coal to support his grandmother and sister. Here they work with little ventilation or light. If they get trapped, no one will come to help.
8: We have lost a lot of them. Others with the collapse of the mine. Others with the gases that it came underground. So it's dangerous work? Yes, yes. When you inhale that gas, you won't even walk even 50 steps or 10 steps. You just collapse. You become weak. So why do you still do it? I don't have a choice because I have to save my hunger. And not only me, those who follow me, I may die alone here. But what about those who, who, who are depending on me?
3: South Africa is a country dependent on coal, with hundreds of thousands of jobs linked to these mines. And its monopoly power utility and shaky economy almost entirely anchored on coal-fired plants. ESCOM is one of Africa's biggest polluters, but it's all relative. South Africa has contributed very little historically to emissions that have caused climate change. Why move away from coal at all?
9: You know, there's this uh, saying that the stone age didn't end because of a lack of stones. And I'm convinced that given current technological trends, the coal age won't end because of a
3: lack of coal. To avoid a climate catastrophe, climate scientists say the renewable age needs to be pushed by the entire world, even by countries like South Africa. That contributes around just 1% of annual emissions globally.
8: Eskom has made a decision, not anymore.
3: To commit to the transition, Eskom says it will shut down ageing coal plants like Kamati.
8: What will it mean when the last monitor goes off for you? Man, it's, it's sad um, and also an opportunity. So I will be ready when that happens.
3: But the move to renewables takes time and costs money. 50 to $60 billion in South Africa alone, says ESCOM.
8: So this will become um, useless.
3: So rich countries will need to finance the transition as part of their climate commitments, despite ESCOM's mountains of debt and history of corruption allegations.
9: I think it's not only realistic, it's an imperative. If you look at the position that South Africa unfortunately occupies, Given our size, uh, for South Africa to be the 12th largest carbon emitter in the world, we, I think, are a poster child of what needs to be done in order to transition away from coal to more sustainable forms of electricity generation.
3: They
8: are saying
3: that maybe South Africa needs to stop using coal. Yes. Because of climate change. Yes. What do you think about
8: that? Sure. Sure. What can I say about that? It makes me scared just because of we have a lot of people who, who, who depend on the cold. So we can't live without it.
7: So uh, almost a half million jobs alone in that province depend on coal according to industry insiders and the transition which has been painful in other countries will have to be managed very carefully politically and economically. Uh, Just a short time ago in announcing this deal President Joe Biden said trillions will be needed to help transition developing countries away from fossil fuels. Uh, But it's clear with the climate crisis only getting worse that the details need to be figured out very soon. Julia?
0: Yes, immediately if we possibly can. David McKenzie, thank you so much for that. Now, on the day the World Food Programme says it'll cost over six billion dollars to reach 42 million people in food poverty, the United States and the UAE are leading a drive to invest in climate smart agriculture and food systems. I apologize. President Biden is actually speaking at the COP26 as we speak, and I'm going to hand you great, over great to him great. now to listen in.
2: I want to thank Ursula. Thank you so much to everyone here today, you know, uh, for signing this game changing commitment. One of the most important things we can do, and I keep referring, as many of you do, to this decisive decade, we've got to figure what we're going to do. It's not just between now and 2050. What we're going to do between now and 2030 is going to impact significantly on whether we'll be able to meet our longer-term commitment. And one of the most important things we can do in this decisive decade is to keep 1.5 degrees in reach, is reduce our methane emissions as quickly as possible. As has already been stated, it's one of the most potent greenhouse gases there is. It amounts to about half, half the warming we're experiencing today. Just the methane exposure. So together, we're committing to collectively reduce our methane by 30 percent by 2030. And I think we could probably go beyond that. We just announced this package at the General Assembly uh, and back in September. At the time, as mentioned, nine countries had signed on. Today, it's over 80. It's approaching 100 countries that are signing on. That's nearly half the global methane emissions, or 70 percent of the global GDP. And it's not — it's going to make a huge difference, and not just when it comes to fighting climate change, as Ursula pointed out, the physical health of individuals and a whole range of other things. It's going to improve health, reduce asthma, respiratory-related emergencies. It's going to improve the food supply as well by cutting crop losses and related ground-level pollution. And it's going to boost our economies, saving companies money, reducing methane leaks, capturing methane to turn it into new revenue streams, as well as creating good-paying union jobs for our workers. And we're we're talking about jobs to manufacture new technologies for methane detection jobs for union pipe fitters and welders to go out and cap abandoned oil wells and plug leaking pipelines, which there's thousands of miles of those. And it has been a foundation, a foundational commitment of my, my administration from the beginning. It's something that we can, I campaigned on, and today I'm announcing the next steps to reduce U.S. methane emissions. We're proposing two new rules. One through our Environmental Protection Agency that's going to reduce methane losses from new and existing oil and gas pipelines, and one through the Department of Transportation to reduce wasteful and potential dangerous leaks from natural gas pipelines. They have authority over that area. We're also launching a new initiative to work uh, with our farmers and our ranchers to reduce climate smart agricultural practices and reduce methane on farms, which is a significant source as well. And this is all part of our new methane strategy, which focuses on reducing the largest source of methane emissions while putting thousands, thousands of skilled workers on the job all across the United States, and I expect in your countries as well. So let me close again by uh, reiterating this isn't just something we have to do to protect the environment in our future. It's an enormous opportunity enormous opportunity for all of us, all of our nations, to create jobs and make meeting climate goals a core part of our global economic recovery as well. The United States is eager to work with each of you to make sure we meet this goal and encourage more countries, more countries to join us in committing to reducing methane globally because there are more that can join and should. So I want to thank you again. Much more to say, but much of it has already been said. But thank you for your partnership. Thank you for your ambition. And now I'm going to turn it back to Secretary Kerry. I believe he's still here. There he is. I thank you all so very much.
0: US President Biden, they're speaking about their proposal to limit methane emissions by 30 percent by 2030 and in perfect timing, joining us now for an exclusive interview is U.S. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack. So fantastic to have you on the show. You have an announcement of your own to make this morning, but I do just want to get you to comment on the methane announcement here today too, because I believe around a quarter of methane emissions do come from the agriculture sector. So how does this relate to the work that you're doing too?
9: Well, there's a tremendous opportunity to convert Mm. methane into renewable energy and fuel, Uh, We at USDA are going to create uh, the opportunity for large scale demonstration projects, uh, the financing of anaerobic digesters to basically uh, deal with this issue. Uh, There are also new and creative ways to use methane. Uh, We're taking a look at uh, opportunities potentially uh, in concrete, for example, to replace the water that's currently used in the development of concrete uh, with methane. So there are a variety of ways in which innovation and technology can, can advance the president's goal, which is obviously an incredibly important goal. And as part of our overall strategy to get uh, agriculture to a net zero emission uh, future.
0: Talk to me about the announcement today, too, because you are partnering with the UAE and 30 other nations and others to coordinate on climate smart agriculture technology. And it's an additional four billion dollars, I believe, over the next four to five years. What do we need to understand about what this will achieve and when the money is coming and how it will be utilised?
9: Well, the money's coming now uh, because we need to act now. Uh, It's important for us to focus on soil health, water quality, uh, emission reductions, uh, renewable fuel and energy opportunities, a wide variety of of needs for innovation and technology. Uh, This is a $4 billion goal. Uh, We're more than halfway there uh, between the UAE and the United States, each uh, basically committing a billion dollars. The president's budget is already uh, providing for the resources in a number of areas, adaptation and mitigation, uh, renewable energy and fuel, and also some assistance for other countries as they deal with uh, some of the challenges that they'll face. So this is a collaborative effort. Uh, 33 countries now, uh, 37 knowledge partners, uh, folks who will provide information, universities and NGOs, as well as a number of Sprint uh, partners, folks who are willing to commit their own private uh, resources to advanced technology.
0: You mentioned that the money's coming now, which is so essential because whether you have concrete projects or not, actually having the money available as you said, to address the problem today is critical. For those that are working in the agricultural sector, even if we just narrow it down to the United States alone, what are they going to be able to access in order to be able to harness the kind of smart technologies that we're talking about? And what is it going to mean for jobs? Do you have a sense of whether this will be additive to jobs or perhaps could cost them? Because I think that's the fear whenever we talk about new technologies.
9: This is the great opportunity here uh, for climate change. We, We often focus on the the challenge side of climate change. But in this particular circumstance, we're looking at enormous opportunities to improve farm income and also to create rural jobs. The conversion of methane into into fuels and energy and other uh, materials, the ability to uh, essentially develop uh, ways in which we can reclaim the manure from livestock operations and turn it into uh, a multitude of fabrics and fibers and materials and food. This is a, a tremendous opportunity to create jobs in rural communities. Uh, we're talking about potentially tens of thousands of jobs that can be created through this new effort Uh, and that's why it's important for the united states to to provide a leadership role which president biden is providing and it's also important that we actually put resources behind this Uh, president's build back better program is focused on an historic investment in a wide variety of research initiatives as well as conservation practices uh, as well as renewable energy production all of which support uh, the methane reduction goal as well as uh, the president's goal of reducing our emissions uh, economy wide by 50 to 52 percent by the year 2030.
0: There's clearly a lot of discussion going on at COP26 about the framework, at least, that President Biden has attended talking about. And within that, of course, five hundred and fifty five billion dollars for climate related spending. But here in the United States, the discussions look challenged, particularly within your own party. Secretary Vilsack, are we going to get this deal done? Are we going to see this deal done? And even if we're talking about this AIM partnership that you're talking about, does it rely, the money for that rely on this deal being done? Because at the moment, it seems like a lot of promises and we're lacking the follow through.
9: Well, the AIM uh, for climate initiative is is funded through the normal budget. So it's not necessarily dependent upon the Build Back Better initiative. But I will tell you, failure is not an option here. Uh, our Congress eventually will get the work done and eventually will uh, see the the power of President Biden's vision and the need for us to transform the economy. This is certainly a benefit to rural uh, parts of the country. Uh, so I think it's going to get done. And in the meantime, we're going to use the tools that we currently have uh, at the Department of Agriculture to advance the president's agenda. We're doing this in terms of uh, creating large scale demonstration projects which are not dependent on uh, the resources under the Build Back Better. So there's going to be progress. There's going to be movement uh, even as we speak. And, and certainly what will happen with the Build Back Better effort, the framework that the president talked about, is it will significantly increase the investment and it will really jumpstart uh, the advancements we can make in reducing emissions and creating opportunity.
0: You know, we've been talking on the show already about food insecurity, whether it's around the world or even in the United States. And I read recently that as many as one in six people in the United States are, are food insecure and then I also read from Refed, a national nonprofit working to reduce food waste, that the equivalent of 54 million tons of food get thrown away every year in the United States. It's worth 90 billion meals of food outside of the efforts of, of climate change and the investment required to introduce smarter technologies in agriculture. Could we do something more innovative to tackle food waste in this country? Because when I look at numbers like that, I see that we could address the problem for ourselves and actually fix it.
9: And not only could we, we are in fact doing this. We have a coalition of uh, government and private sector uh, focused on a goal of reducing food waste by 50% by the year 2030. We have uh, several thousand food companies that are working with us to try to figure out ways in which uh, we can reduce food loss uh, at the home, Uh, in restaurants, uh, in institutions uh, where uh, food is served, in schools. Uh, There's a major initiative and effort uh, in the United States. We also have a food loss and waste issue globally. Uh, And in some developing countries, it's about the inability to store or properly refrigerate food, which can be addressed with investments. And in developed countries, it's about, frankly, we just simply waste food that doesn't have to be wasted. So there's a a tremendous initiative ongoing because this is This is the low-hanging fruit, if you will. Uh, If we can get 30% of the food that's grown and raised actually consumed, uh, that's obviously going to impact and affect the climate emission uh, situation for ag as well.
0: We're also dealing with huge supply chain bottlenecks, and that's impacting the supply and the price of commodities, food commodities in particular for ordinary consumers in the United States and, of course, beyond as well. Um, What can you tell us about the need for U.S. consumers, because that's your remit, to perhaps prepare ahead of the Thanksgiving holidays, in order to ensure that they have the food required. Is there a risk of shortages, and are there going to be enough turkeys for Thanksgiving? Critical question.
9: Well, well I, I, first of all, I think everyone's going to celebrate the fact that they're able to celebrate Thanksgiving that's together a point, as a family, yeah. <laughs> uh, reducing the COVID situation. But, but more importantly, the president is focused on trying to address the shortages by encouraging the ports to basically operate 24 seven. That's obviously going to have an impact working to uh, expand uh, opportunities for truckers to to work a little bit longer so that we uh, address the trucker shortage. Uh, There may be uh, situations uh, throughout the country where uh, a particular grocery store may not have as many turkeys as necessary, but at the end of the day, there's going to be plenty of food uh, on Thanksgiving uh, on Thanksgiving uh, plates uh, for Americans, and I think we have a lot to be thankful for um, as we move it, into uh, the new normal. Uh, look, this uh, the shortages are a result of increased demand, which is a, a necessarily a good thing. Um, and obviously, we're going to continue to work and figure out ways in which we can improve the supply chain. We are investing resources at the Department of Agriculture in trying to address the, the weaknesses, the, the uh, systemic weaknesses of our supply chain. Uh, So that over time, we're going to build, as the president likes to say, we're going to build it back better. Mm -hmm.
0: So one thing I completely agree with you on, we have a lot to be thankful for. And I'm thankful for your time today, too. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Tom Vilsack there, the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. Thank you, sir. Okay, coming up next on First Move, crypto crash. Scammers pocket millions from investors in a cryptocurrency based on, yep, squid game. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. A fictional game turned into a real-life scam. A digital currency based on the Netflix series Squid Game is trading at zero dollars after the currency's creators cashed out. They effectively stole more than two million dollars from investors. Paula Monica is here. Squid squished. I mean, read the small print here, Paul, I think. You could buy this and not sell it, I believe, which is perhaps why it rallied 23 million percent. If it feels too good to be true, it probably is. Talk us through what happened.
10: Yeah, exactly, Julia. As you pointed out, this uh, scam cryptocurrency based on Swig Game let people buy but not sell, which should be a huge red flag or red light, if you will, to go with the first game on the show. I think that investors have to obviously be very, very concerned about anything that is coming out that seems to be tied to a pop culture phenomenon. When you mix cryptocurrencies with that, it does beg the question. If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. And, you know, it's ironic given that the whole point of the show is that people in a poor economic situation, you know, disadvantage of and, uh, you know, having to do this, it's a big problem.
0: I mean, if regulators are concerned about the potential scams in this industry, and we've been through it with things like initial coin offerings, this has to raise all sorts of alarm bells. Um, Is there any hope of recovery, Paul, of this money or is it gone?
10: Yeah, I, I think that there is the possibility that you could have regulators step in. You talked about the fraud with ICOs. There are concerns about NFTs as well. But I think, Julia, what's interesting is that you do have And regulators looking at stable coins, for example, and whether or not there could be issues with that. But you haven't heard as much with the Fed cracking down on Bitcoin and ether and other cryptocurrencies, at least not in the U.S., obviously in China and many other countries. There are crackdowns on crypto and that's why we've seen such volatility in the prices of many of the larger cryptos.
0: Yeah, as we both said, always read the small print and you read all the print in this case because it was littered with spelling mistakes and grammatical errors. And I believe they left a message on their website at the end that said, sorry again for any inconvenience being made for you. If any strange starts coming out of it, comma, ignore it. Thanks.
8: Yeah,
10: I think that it is clear. Just as we've all become accustomed to seeing emails that are poorly written and seem to be scams, and you just delete them right away, I think you have to have that same attitude with regards to any sort of proposal.
0: We've got five seconds left, and I'm being told off. Paul and Monica, that's it for the show. Stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow.